Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our series on the second coming of Jesus, Dr. Neufeld sheds light on an important aspect of his return. Today, we will study the triumph of the Son of Man, and it's found in our Bibles in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. When most of us think of the book of Daniel, I think we think about Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or about that off-filled night when the writing was on the wall for the king of Babylon. And there are amazing events that taught the Jewish people who were in exile in Babylon that God is not only the God of Jerusalem, but he's also the God of Babylon. He's not just God in the good times. He's God in the bad times. He's not just God in the day. He's God in the night. They teach us today that God is ultimately the God of all the earth, of Canada, the Middle East, Europe, Asia. The earth belongs to the Lord, and all the peoples of the earth ultimately do his bidding. But those amazing events recorded in the book of Daniel, I mean the ones many of us know so well, only make up the first half of this book. You know, sometimes in my reading of the book of Daniel, I'm almost convinced that the first half only serves as an introduction to the real drama in the book, which begins in chapter 7. And yet chapter 7 to 12 of Daniel often seems confusing to us. It's about dreams and visions and fantastic images, hard to understand illusions. And yet that's where the ultimate action lies. Here's why I think that. When Daniel 7 opens up, we find Daniel living during the reign of Belshazzar, who's king of Babylon. Daniel has been removed from political power. He's been sidelined. He is older and new leadership has arisen and his services are no longer required. This might have seemed like a tragedy, but in fact, it's a divine opportunity. God took him out of action of government so that he could speak to him and help him understand his experience in Babylon. The dreams and visions he had during the later years of his life helped him make sense out of his entire life. You know, if it's helpful, let me put it this way. God allowed Daniel to crawl up on top of a huge mountain and see the panorama of human history that was going to be played out. The predictions Daniel makes in chapter 7 to 12 are breathtaking in their accuracy. He predicted the rise of Alexander the Great. He he predicted the rise of the Roman Empire. But he sees not only what will occur in years ahead, he sees down to the very end of world history and predicts exactly how it will all turn out. There's an interesting lesson to be learned from this. God never sidelines his people. He may change your assignment as he did when he took Daniel from political office, but you're always useful to him if you're obedient to him. You know, if you lose your job, are you sidelined? Well, no. If you lose your health, you're not sidelined. God may change your assignment in this world, but you're always going to be his servant. So if Daniel had not been removed from political office, he would not have had time to write and to contemplate the visions of God. The best thing that could have happened from our perspective is that Daniel was taken out of political office and removed from his place of influence. The real problem, however, is that when we read Daniel 7 to 12, we find ourselves in a form of literature that can seem altogether confusing. This kind of material is called apocalyptic literature that many of us find hard to understand, and yet it's so very important. You know, as we enter into a new year after the Christmas season, I've wanted to focus on the second coming of Christ, and Daniel has a lot to say about it. And because Daniel was able to look deeply into God's plan for the earth and for the end of the age, this book should interest us. And what are we supposed to learn from Daniel 7? Well, first, we learn that God controls the saga of human history. Let's read Daniel 7, 1 to 3. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Note several things. Daniel's lying in his bed, and we assume he's been unable to sleep, and in his sleepless, restless state, God's revelations come to him. And God is giving him visions that greatly disturb him. He's frightened, and yet he begins to write them down. There's several elements in his vision. I mean, the first deals with four winds of heaven, and the second deals with the sea, which is being churned up and is raging as a result of these four winds blowing on it. Then out of the sea come four very terrifying and strange-looking beasts. And what does that mean? You know, as we continue to read, it seems apparent that the four winds are the destructive power of God's judgment. Daniel sees a storm, and he knows the storm has something to do with God controlling the saga of human history. Great upheaval is coming. Four winds of God's judgment make the sea rage all the more. What we are to envisage is that even though the sea is raging, behind all of that is the sovereign hand of God. The raging sea represents the ever-changing Gentile world. Kingdoms come and smash existing kingdoms, only themselves to fall. And out of this chaos of human history, Daniel is given a perspective of four very specific beasts that come out of the chaos. Let's listen to Daniel as he describes what he saw in Daniel 7 verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now, I'm about to do something that really requires a much more thorough study of the book than we can do in this broadcast, but if we had the time, we would see that what Daniel is describing in this vision corresponds to the head of gold in chapter 2. His first vision refers to Babylon. The winged lion was a characteristic symbol of Babylon, and its image was found in various places in that city. The plucking of the four wings refers to Nebuchadnezzar's seven years of madness found in chapter 4. The giving of the heart of a man refers to Nebuchadnezzar's restoration and his realization that he wasn't God after all, but there is a God who rules over him. Then Daniel moves on to describe the second beast he saw, and I'm reading verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Again, like the first image, this too corresponds to an image Daniel had received earlier. Daniel is shown a vision of what will happen in the future. And the beast, or the empire that he sees, is that of a bear raised up on one side. What Daniel sees is an empire on which one half of it will be raised higher than the other half. Now, in Daniel's time, this was still to come, but on this side of history, we can now look back and see exactly what this was. He's referring to the Medo-Persian Empire that defeated Babylon during the time of Daniel. See, in history, the Persians dominated the Medes and became the more pronounced half of this joint empire. You'll also notice that it had three ribs in its mouth, and history tells us that the Medo-Persian Empire was built upon three major conquests. The first happened in 546 BC when they defeated the Lydian kingdom of Asia Minor. By the time that Daniel had this vision, this event had already occurred. 
The second happened in 539 BC when they conquered Babylon only a few years after Daniel saw this vision. And the third happened in 525 BC when they conquered Egypt. Now, those three victories gave the Medo-Persian Empire power over the whole Middle East. They devoured any nation they liked. Daniel perfectly foresaw exactly what would happen to this kingdom. So let's move on to the third beast recorded in verse 6. After this, I looked and behold another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. As before, this corresponds to the earlier vision of chapter 2. This beast refers to the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. A leopard is one of the fastest land animals in the world, but this one has four wings increasing its speed. History tells us that Alexander conquered great kingdoms with lightning-like speed, but he died suddenly in 323 BC, and his empire was divided among four heads of state depicted by the four heads on this beast. So far, the visions correspond perfectly with what we know happened in history. But Daniel, in his time, could see them in the future. It's an amazing prediction proving to us that God orders the events of the world just as he wills. See, nothing is out of control. And the unique thing about the book of Daniel is that even though for Daniel this was in the future, but for us, history tells us how amazingly accurate Daniel was, so much so that there is a tradition that says that when Alexander the Great came to the gates of Jerusalem, a priest came out to meet him with a copy of the book of Daniel showing his place in history. Now, that, in fact, is an accurate tradition. It probably tells us why it was that Alexander spared the city of Jerusalem, but that's all a historical aside. The book of Daniel really provides us with an understanding that God can tell us far in advance exactly what's going to happen before it does. And Daniel, after that, predicts an even more distant future, and we're going to look at that when we come back. In the first half of the program, we get a sense of what Daniel's vision in chapter 7 is all about, which at first may seem very confusing. God gives him a picture of just what he's done and is about to do in history. Indeed, this passage reiterates an important truth. God ultimately controls the saga of human history. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will walk us through the remaining prophecies, leading us to the ultimate and final kingdom to reign, that of Christ. Thanks for listening today. You know, as you're aware, the month of December represents a challenging one for the ministry, but also an opportunity as we're attempting to reach a critical year-end goal of $390,000 by December 31st. If you've already partnered with us towards this goal, thank you so much. And for the rest of you, I want to make a special request in these last remaining days to make a special gift today. Whether it's $50, $100, or $1,000, any gift will go a long way in helping us reach more Canadians with God's Word right across our country. Join us in making a difference in the spiritual journey of others. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Up to now, we've seen that Daniel saw a vision of the empire he was living in and predicted two more that would follow. Now let's move forward, and I'm reading from verse 7. 
After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I like to call this robo-beast. That's because it's like no animal we know. It seems mechanical. It has large iron teeth and destroys and devours without any sense of conscience whatsoever. This obviously suggests the superior strength of the Roman Empire as the greatest and most powerful empire the world had known up till that point. Babylon, Persia, and Greece were smaller and less stable than Rome. Rome dominated the world in a way in which the other empires before it were unable to do. It was the most horrifying empire of all. And now to verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which had three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. It seems likely here that the ten horns of verse 7 represent ten leaders from the Roman kingdom. We know from history that there were twelve rulers from Julius Caesar to Domitian, but two of them ruled for only a few months, so ten is indeed the number from Julius to Domitian. Domitian was well known for his murderous persecution against the church. But then from these ten horns, Daniel sees a little one arising who is significantly different from all the rest. This vision is described later in the chapter, and I'm reading from chapter 7, verse 24, where it says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. Now, many Bible teachers, and myself included, think that there is a considerable time gap here, a great length of time now transpires between the ten horns and the little one that arises. And it seems to me, however, that in some form, out of some pattern laid down by the Roman Empire, there would arise the most wicked of all kingdoms. What Daniel saw was that in the end of the world, there would be an empire with some features like the Roman Empire in that it was strong and and stable and brutal. And this little horn is not an empire, but it's a man who speaks boastfully. He uproots three kingdoms in his rise to power, and this is the Antichrist. Now, this last event that Daniel saw has not yet occurred, so it's futile to speculate as to any of the details of just how it will transpire, only to say that once it's here, just like the other examples, it will make sense when we see it. Now, I do not believe any of us could have guessed the other beasts before they happened. Only after the events do the visions become clear. Then we say that's remarkable in its accuracy. And this I find a useful key. God does not want us to use Bible prophecy as some sort of tool to guess who will be the Antichrist or which nation will give rise to the Antichrist. God does, however, want us to understand that no matter how evil things become, he is in control. If you're being persecuted for the faith, God is in control. If black clouds gather over you in your future, God is still in control. Great horror may yet lie before the human race because of its unbridled sin and rebellion against God, but we need not fear. Human rebellion against God is not the last thing to be said about this planet. Now let's move forward to verses 9 to 10. 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. You know, the Ancient of Days is one of the great titles for God. It does not mean that God is getting old, but rather that God is from of old, from ancient times. His beginnings are beyond tracing out. Because before anything else was, there was God. He has a longer history than all things, longer than the empires of this world that come and go. His white clothing represents radiant purity, and his white hair symbolizes his great age. His chariot-style throne tells us of a great warrior who decimates his enemies. The stream of fire that comes out from before him is like a lava flow. When he moves, he wipes out all that stands in his path. The beasts in Daniel's visions melt before him, and their power is as nothing before him. And then, As a great number of all the kingdoms stand before him, books are opened. The court of God's judgment begins. What are we to learn from this? Well, we learn that when God judges, he does so with a depth of wisdom and knowledge that leave him without equal. We look like fools in his presence. And then in verses 11 to 12, well, listen to these words. It says, I looked and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. There's a part of this section that's, well, frankly, I think it's almost comical. The boastful little horn is speaking and spewing out blasphemies until the very moment he's dragged before the heavenly tribunal. Can you just imagine how suddenly he goes from boastfulness and vanity to terror and helplessness? No one is exempt from judgment, least of all the Antichrist. The other beasts referred to in verse 12 are the remnant of all the world powers that went before the Antichrist. They are held in reserve to be judged after the Antichrist. I mean, can you imagine all the dictators who have ever lived? I mean, there stands Napoleon, and there stands Hitler and Stalin and Mao, and there stands every small-time despot and every thief and every robber and everyone who's ever ignored the ways of God. See, this is the most horrifying scene that will ever happen in the history of the human race. Now to verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you know that this passage in Daniel is the most frequently quoted portion of this book in the entire New Testament? And you know why? Because Jesus repeatedly referred to himself as the Son of Man. It's the most common title for himself. In Luke 5.24, he said that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In Luke 6.5, he said that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He tells his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and die and be raised from the dead. And in Matthew 26, it tells of the trial of Jesus, and here's what it says. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath of the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. See, the Son of Man is a title, even as the Ancient of Days is a title. By calling him a Son of Man, Daniel wants us to know that this indeed was a man. But by saying that he has a universal dominion over all things means that he bears an inherent sovereignty over the universe, that he is God of very God. Daniel saw that the final outcome of the human race would fall not into the hands of the beasts of history, the empire builders that conquered and reigned their kingdoms for but a moment in time. Rather, the outcome of the human race will fall into the hands of the Son of Man. His kingdom is the last great kingdom. His reign ends the reign of all the beasts. He is the destiny of the human race. And it was back in the 1700s that hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote the following lines. He said, Jesus will reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. John, a great message, but somewhat terrifying. Uh, You know, you think of all these images and it just gets overwhelming sometimes. But are we supposed to be terrified by this? Should this be a scary passage of scripture? It's such an interesting question because I I find myself wondering exactly how to answer it. Uh, On the one hand, yes, it is terrifying. It was terrifying to Daniel because he's looking at these visions and he sees this sea churning in this restless state of, of the human race in which beasts are rising constantly. And, and I think this is the story of the history of the world as we know it. Uh, the, the restlessness of human lives and human souls and, and cultures give rise to these monstrous-like uh, empires which decimate people. And so if we look into the future, I mean, we're not going to see more peaceful days coming. We're going to see uh, horrible days. I mean, I've, I've heard it said that, you know, the 20th century has the, been the most bloody century in history, and I don't think the future looks any better. And yet, at the same time, we see that all of this is already foreknown by God and that he moves upon the histories of mankind in such a way and demonstrates his sovereignty so that at the right time he ends human rulership and the reign of Christ begins. So great hope, great joy in all of this at the same time. I hope you've gotten an overwhelming sense of this final triumph of the Son of Man when he returns one day. What an amazing and encouraging passage we've studied. And at the same time, it can be seen as immensely terrifying. Christ's judgment is so prevalent here, but also his power, authority, and rulership. What a great king we serve. May we always remember what we've learned today. May it increase our understanding and worship of who God is. May we long for and be ready for his return to earth. Join us again tomorrow for another installment of this series with Dr. John Newfeld looking at the signs of his coming. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. How much do you know about Jesus' second coming? Have you grasped the importance of this topic that is central to the faith? For many Christians, we may have a surface-level understanding of what it all means, but perhaps wanted to know more. Well, hopefully you're enjoying our current series so far with Dr. John Newfeld as we attempt to take a deeper look. We've just started here, but there is much more great teaching to come this week as we'll study passages in the Gospel of Matthew, 
2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. And this month, we want to offer you the series on CD as our gift. So don't pass up the opportunity to have a copy of these important messages for yourself, or even to use in a study group, or pass it on to a friend. To order Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus on CD, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or email us at info at backtothebible.ca.